If you're enjoying this podcast and it's helping your writing, then come study with me. You can join our classes in New York City or live online from anywhere in the world. And you can also work with us one-on-one in our ProTrack mentorship program where we will pair you with a professional writer who will mentor you through every phase of your career, reading every page that you write. It's a really amazing program. So if you'd like to learn more about it, please visit our website, writeyourscreenplay.com. Hello, I'm Jacob Kruger, and this is the Write Your Screenplay Podcast. On this podcast, rather than reviewing movies like critics, two thumbs up, two thumbs down, loved it or hated it, we're going to look at movies in terms of what we can learn from them as screenwriters. We're going to look at good movies and bad movies, movies that we loved and movies that we hated. For an ad-free version of this podcast, as well as a full transcript, please visit our website, writeyourscreenplay.com. This week, we're going to be talking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood by Quentin Tarantino. And we're going to start by just setting aside the question of whether the movie actually works or not. Some people think it is Quentin Tarantino's finest work. Some people don't like the film at all. But that's not really what I'm interested in. What I'm interested in when it comes to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is how you build a premise into the story that you want to tell. Now, a quick spoiler alert, it's impossible to talk about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood without some spoilers, so I am going to give some spoilers here at the beginning, but I'm going to try to keep them light. And then as we get deeper in, there's a big spoiler at the end, and I promise to give you a nice warning before we get there. The inception for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is the Manson murders, which is obviously a subject that has been explored quite a bit, both in news media and in film. So Quentin Tarantino wants to write a movie about the Manson murders. And whenever you are exploring a topic that other people have explored, you have to have a take. Now, you might love Quentin Tarantino's take, or you may hate Quentin Tarantino's take, but he's got a take. What a take means is, why is your approach to this film slightly different than anybody else's approach to this film. How are you telling the story differently from an angle that only you could tell it? And this is one of the most important skills to develop as a writer, both for the development of your own projects, but also when you get into the work-for-hire world. You're brought in, someone's read your scripts, and they like your work. That's why it's important to have a library so people can read a couple of scripts of yours. And they like your work, and they're interested, and they have an idea. They have a project that maybe is just starting or a project that needs to be rewritten. And you're being auditioned as a potential person to do that rewrite. And what they want to hear is not, hey, I'm a great writer, and yeah, it wasn't Manson horrible. What they want to hear is how you are going to approach the material in a way that's going to differentiate it from the way that anybody else would. And a lot of that comes from instinct, and a lot of that comes from who you are. But the goal is to learn how to talk about it in a way that's instantly clear that other people can instantly get. So what you realize when you watch Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is that Quentin Tarantino is actually doing the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead version of the Manson murders. His take on the material is that instead of focusing on Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski and the people living at Cielo, instead of focusing on the Manson family or even on Manson himself, who we only get one tiny little glimpse of in the whole movie, 
Instead, he's going to focus on two fictional and tangential characters. An actor named Rick Dalton, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, who's on the declining portion of his career. And his stuntman, Cliff Booth, played by Brad Pitt, who is his best friend in the world and who doesn't have two nickels to rub together. And instead of watching the story from the main character's point of view, we're going to watch it from those secondary characters' points of view. If you don't know what Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead are, this is a play you should check out. It's a play by Tom Stoppard, where he basically took Hamlet and he turned it inside out, looking at it from the perspective of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, the two tiniest players in the play. So you can see that Quentin Tarantino is using Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead as a model to find his own take on the Manson murders. And maybe he's doing that consciously or maybe he's not. But one of the things that's really interesting, when people pitch movies, they always do the, it's this meets that, right? It's the Manson murders meets Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. It's Jaws meets Rosemary's Baby, right? People always like to do these mashups. And when I'm pitching a script, I don't like to pitch mashups because if I pitch a mashup, what I'm doing is I'm sounding just like everybody else. Instead, what I like to do is I like to tell my take on the piece, And that the producer or the manager or the agent or the star go, oh my God, I get it. It's this meets that. So I'm not suggesting that your take should be this meets that. I'm suggesting that every time you approach material, you want to go, what matters to me here? What am I interested in here? And what you're interested in might not be the thing that is so flashy and big that you think most people would be interested in. What you're interested in might not be how did Charles Manson convince a bunch of kids to do this horrible thing. What you're interested in might be if you're Quentin Tarantino and the only thing you love in the world are movies. It might be movies. It might be about the objectification of actors. It might be about the humanization of actors. It might be about actors as prey. It might be about the question of how do violent movies like the kinds that you make fuel violence or rather are actors in Hollywood being used as a scapegoat for people who have their own motivations as you can see in that wonderful final speech by Ted when he tells his two cohorts we're going to punish the people who taught us violence when he goes to commit the murders. So this is really important. Your take grows from what you are interested in personally. And it might be that a lot of people hate your take, but the people who love your take are going to love it so much that you're the only writer they want to work with. Your take cannot be something you think is going to impress other people because at the end of the day, you're going to have to execute your take and you're only going to be able to execute a version of the story that actually matters to you. Similarly, your take cannot be the same take that most people have on the material. Otherwise, somebody with a better resume is going to beat you out for the job. When you're working on your own material, you might not even know your take at the beginning. Just like when you first come to the Manson story, you might not know your take. Mindhunter is a completely different take on serial killers than Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. The Silence of the Lambs is a completely different take on serial killers than Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. 
So at the beginning, you might not even know your take. It might be writing a couple of drafts and seeing what's hot, what's exciting, what's interesting. It might be that the thing that you thought was going to be really cool isn't cool at all. Or the thing that you thought was going to be so powerful actually isn't. But the thing that you didn't expect to even discover turns out to be really exciting. It might be that you start out and you think you're going to write a movie about Manson and instead some dude named Rick Dalton shows up and he's kind of sad and kind of funny and kind of a jerk and for whatever reason you're fascinated by him. So your take is something that evolves as you look at the material and there's the way that you talk about the take and then there's the way you execute the take. And the take on the movie is going to affect literally everything you do, literally every choice you make. And so if you look at the structure of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, what structure there is, it grows entirely from this take. And a lot of people are frustrated with the structure of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And quite frankly, I was a little frustrated with the structure of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But the reason the structure unfolds so tangentially is because we are watching the story through the tangential characters. The reason the pressure of the murders builds so slowly, the reason that the idea of Manson builds so slowly, is because we're watching from the perspective of the tangential characters. Even within the world of Hollywood, even though Rick is a Hollywood actor, he's a tangential Hollywood actor dealing with his own tangentialness. What we're watching as we watch Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is we're watching the world of Hollywood and the world of Manson happen around these characters. We're watching it affect the trajectory of their lives without them even realizing what's actually happening. And what we're building, what Quentin Tarantino is building, is a growing sense of pressure. For a while, it seems like you're just having fun, and then you realize, oh my God, that's Sharon Tate. And it seems like you're just having fun, and then you realize, oh my God, I think that guy who just showed up looking for Terry is Manson. And then it seems like you're just having fun, and you realize, oh my God, that girl that Brad Pitt just got in the car with, who seems so lovely and flirty, is actually a pretty messed up 16-year-old. And oh my God, she's tied to Manson. What you end up realizing is slowly you're putting it together. Oh my God, this is all going to culminate in the Manson murders. And Tarantino's doing a really interesting thing with violence here. And it could be argued that it's not totally effective, but what he's doing is kind of fascinating. Which is, when you're watching a Quentin Tarantino movie, you are waiting for the violence. You know the freaking violence is coming, and you know it's going to be really gross and really violent. And you're waiting for the violence in the real story, and he keeps on denying it to you. He gives you plenty of Hollywood violence when he cuts to the film clips of Rick Dalton. But he keeps on denying you the real world violence. There's that moment when Brad Pitt is on the boat and you know he's killed his wife. And you're waiting for the real world violence. You're like, oh my God, this is going to be the grossest thing I've ever seen. And in most Quentin Tarantino movies, he's going to show it to you. But in this movie, he doesn't show it to you. He withholds it. In fact, the only moment of violence we have up until that final sequence is the moment when one of the Manson followers stabs the wheel of the car that Cliff is driving, Brad Pitt's character. 
and there's a moment of really graphic violence between the two of them. But all the normal violence that we're expecting in a Tarantino film is denied. And instead, what we keep on watching is play and silliness and loveliness. Particularly with Sharon, we are just watching. She's not even real in her loveliness. She's so freaking lovely that we can't even handle her loveliness. That she's like the very idea of loveliness and vulnerability. And we are just waiting because we all know what's going to happen. And that builds a certain kind of feeling of pressure. That here we are watching these characters live their oblivious lives, thinking that they're not meaningful at all, but actually woven into their lives is the most important thing that happens in that time. And they're not even aware that they're a part of it. Not even towards the end of that moment that Rick Dalton shouts down the Manson followers who are sitting on the car in his driveway, waiting to go commit their devilish act. Even then, he doesn't know that he's a part of it. So what ends up happening is we have this growing feeling of pressure in us. And there's a part of us that's wondering, what the hell is this movie about? What's actually happening? Why am I just kind of wandering through Hollywood nostalgia? And there's this other part of you that's like, oh no, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And the more he denies it to you, it's like seeing the shark's fin in the water. The more he denies it to you, you, the more you know it's coming and you know it's Quentin Tarantino and you know it's going to be more horrific than you could ever imagine. Which brings me to the last thing that I want to talk about which is the idea of surprise. As soon as you have a take on a piece, as soon as you have an idea for how the piece works, as soon as you have a pitch, what's going to happen is that both you and your audience are going to start to pitch yourselves what needs to happen. That you're going to start to envision the kinds of scenes that must happen in your movie. You're going to start to envision an ending of your movie. And there's one very simple rule to live by when you're thinking about that structure. To some degree, you want to play with those expectations and you want to play into those expectations because it's those expectations that create the genre, that create the feeling of a movie that exists within a certain kind of world. The emotional effect grows out of kind of knowing what world we're in. If you made a horror movie that didn't have horror, if you had a Quentin Tarantino movie that didn't have violence and play and fun, we would feel gypped because we come for those feelings. And at the same time, once you know exactly what's going to happen and exactly how it's going to happen, here's the only thing to think about. That can't happen that way. When you know the big thing that's going to happen and you know that that's what has to happen because it's the natural extension of your take on the piece, the one thing you have to remember is it can't happen that way. It can't happen that way because at the beginning of your writing, no matter how freaking smart you think you are, you're not actually that smart. The reason you're not actually that smart is because you don't know your characters well enough yet and you don't know your movie well enough yet. And the thing you think is the incredible trick ending is actually the trick ending that everyone sees coming. And the things you're thinking are, oh my God, I came up with this amazing idea. They're actually the cliches based on other movies that you've seen. And if you end up writing the movie that takes the take to exactly the place you'd expect the take to go, what's going to happen is you're going to end up writing another derivative movie. 
And look, lots of derivative movies get made, but they don't get made by first-time screenwriters. They don't get made by emerging screenwriters. When you're at the beginning of your career, you have to have the disruptive piece. And some people are going to hate your disruptive piece because it's disruptive. But the person who loves your disruptive piece, they're going to fight for it to the ends of the earth. And that's the kind of fight that you're going to need to succeed in this industry when you're first starting out. So the thing to remember is whatever has to happen, it cannot happen that way. It must happen in a way that surprises your expectations, your character's expectations, and your audience's expectations. It cannot happen the way that's obvious when you start the movie. And at the same time, whatever has to happen, it has to happen. Meaning, if you're waiting for that crescendo of violence, and the kind of violence that you're expecting doesn't happen, you're also going to feel gypped. So this is the challenge. This is what we're looking for. We're looking for the thing that doesn't happen the way that we expect, but outdoes the genre expectations that we've built up towards. And if you've seen the movie, you can see where I'm going with this. I've given some little spoilers along the way, but now I'm going to give the big one. So if you haven't watched it yet, this is the time to sign off. Because what Tarantino ends up doing at the end of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is an old trick that he started with Inglorious Bastards, which is you're watching Inglorious Bastards and you know the history, so you know what's going to happen. And Tarantino basically goes, screw the history. I'm going to tell the story of what I wished happened. And by telling the story of what I wished happened, I'm actually going to make what really happened even sadder and even more disturbing. Because I'm going to show you a different path. I'm going to show you what it could have been if the world was fair and just and if things were right. He does the same thing with Django Unchained. And when it comes to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, he doesn't show you what really happened. He shows you what he wished happened. That instead of murdering Sharon Tate, that those three hopped up, messed up followers of a madman instead stumbled into the wrong damn house. And you can see that the execution of that takes these tangential characters and turns them into heroes. And you can see that the execution of that outdoes the genre expectations of how horrible we expect the violence to be. It's just that the violence is directed towards the Manson followers rather than towards the innocent victims that were really killed on that day. And in doing so, Tarantino's making a statement about the way that he sees violence, the way that Hollywood gets blamed for violence in a world where we can't pass a reasonable gun law, in the way that self-serving people manipulate, pointing the finger at violent movies in order to do the things that they wish to do. And you can see how by denying the violence in the film and showing only the ridiculous Hollywood violence, showing the victimization of these spoiled actors that we tend to both love and hate, by turning the whole movie on that one line by text about how we're going to go punish the people who taught us this violence, the Tarantino's exploring the violence in his own movies and his own role in this political equation where we do learn from movies and we are inspired by movies. 
and yet we're also part of a much more complicated arithmetic. So this is where take and theme start to meet because every movie has a take and if you're working from the outside in you just might start with your take i want to do the rosencrantz and guildenstern are dead version of the manson murders and what's going to happen is if you just keep pushing on that take and if you just assure that hey some of the things can happen the way i've expected but the big thing that i'm expecting can't happen that way eventually it's going to lead you to a theme eventually it's going to lead you to a real exploration of something that really matters to you and similarly if you don't have a take yet well don't worry about it just keep on pushing on your theme keep on pushing on the pieces of the script that are interesting to you the images the characters the lines the moments that are interesting to you the questions that are interesting to you keep on pushing on the theme and suddenly the take will emerge because the take is just the commercial version of the theme. Just like the theme is really just the emotional version of the take. So one last thought as we are working on all of this. For those of you who are interested in learning screenwriting and learning how to find this kind of take in an organic way, then I invite you to check out my Write Your Screenplay class. We have a couple of great classes coming up this fall. We have a weekend intensive version in September. We also have a four-week version of the class, both taught by me. So come check that out. You can find that at writeyourscreenplay.com WYS, and you can attend from anywhere in the world. And for those of you who are looking for more of the commercial side of this, we have a brand new class called Produce Your Script that's happening on October 19th from 12 to 3 p.m. with Ramfus Myrtle. That's 12 to 3 Eastern time. If you go to writeyourscreenplay.com slash produce, you can see that part of it. And what Ramfus is going to be doing, he's going to be teaching pitching. He is going to be teaching self-production, how to put together a business plan for your script, how to talk to financiers, distributors. He's bringing in a whole panel of those people that you can talk to and ask questions to, to really understand how to talk, how to pitch, how to build, how to take the reins on your script, whether you want to produce yourself or whether you want to bring your script to somebody else. It's going to be a really amazing class and we're so excited to have Ramfus as a part of the team. So check out my website. Come join us. Come learn with us. Again, you can attend from anywhere in the world. You can participate live. You can ask questions or you can come here to New York and meet us here at the studio. So I hope to see you all in both classes and to get to work with you all. I hope that you enjoyed this podcast. For a complete transcript, please visit our website, writeyourscreenplay.com slash podcast.